Welcome to Society and Culture Podcast. A perfect way to digest bite-sized episodes that cover a range of interesting topics related to society and culture. Whether you're looking for interesting facts, historical insights, or just want to be entertained, this podcast has you covered. With new episodes released every day, there's always something new to listen to. And now, here's your episode. Enjoy! Have we been approaching motivation all wrong? Nir Eyal reveals why discomfort is essential to achieving our goals. From Near and Far, read by Sean Crisden. It took me five years to write Indistractable, which was a lot longer than it should have taken. The problem wasn't that I didn't know what to do. I did. I just didn't do it. I wasn't motivated. Indistractable is about how to stop getting distracted. Ironically, the problem was that I kept getting distracted. That is, until I learned the key to finally doing what I set out to do. When I finally understood the biology behind why we do what we do, I didn't just write the book. I became more productive at work, started exercising and eating healthier, and spent more time with the people I love, all because I finally realized I'd been thinking about motivation all wrong. What is the biology of motivation? Like most people, I only had a vague understanding of what motivation really meant. I thought of it like the wind. It came and went, and if I were lucky enough to catch it in my sails, I could steer my ship toward my goals. The problem with this thinking is that if the wind isn't blowing, you're dead in the water. If we depend on feeling motivated to do what we don't feel like doing, we'll never accomplish hard-to-achieve goals. To understand what motivation is and how to harness it correctly, we have to understand our brains a bit better, starting with the very basics. Why do we have brains anyway? Plenty of life forms don't have brains and get along just fine. Biologists believe the reason creatures evolved brains was to facilitate motion. It's no coincidence that the word motivation stems from the same root as the word motion. A fascinating study on freshwater snails, I know, stick with me here, found that creatures could make complex decisions with only two brain cells, one for sensing the presence of food and one to tell the snail whether it's hungry or not. These two neurons determine, for the snail, whether it's worthwhile to move in the direction of a potential food source. If the hunger pangs are painful enough, the snail moves toward the food, albeit ever so slowly. More complex brains evolved to help animals escape what psychologists call an aversive stimulus, something that feels uncomfortable. Bears and birds leave the cold of winter by respectively hibernating in warm caves or flying south. When our brains register that discomfort, it spurs us to put on a coat. When it's too hot, discomfort triggers us to take it off again. This seesaw influencing our behavior is an example of homeostasis. It's the physiological and psychological process our bodies use to keep us level. The body's desire to maintain homeostasis governs all sorts of bodily functions, both conscious and unconscious. But when the body can't regulate itself, our brain spurs us to action. It makes us do something to fix the problem, just like the snail moving toward food when that one brain cell registers hunger pangs. 
If our brains determine we're missing something, whether it's food to nourish our bodies or friends to nourish our psyche, it creates the feeling of hunger or loneliness to make us feel bad enough to do something to meet that need. So, how does the biology of the term help us answer the question of what motivation is? We can think of motivation as the desire to escape discomfort. Evolutionarily, our brains are similar to snails' brains. They're more complex, sure, but the motivational drive is the same. When we are uncomfortable, we are motivated to restore homeostasis. Even wanting is its own form of discomfort, which means that what looks like a lack of motivation is often simply someone escaping discomfort in an unhealthy or unproductive way. Let's take, for example, a teenager who spends all their free time playing video games. Despite what their parents may say, it's not quite right to say they lack motivation. After all, it takes hours of focus and practice to emerge victorious from an epic battle. Rather, the teenager is motivated to play video games because, in them, they find a way to escape boring schoolwork, social pressure, and nagging parents. It's a quick, easy relief from dealing with discomfort. And that's the other important thing to remember. Humans, like water, seek the path of least resistance. When we realize that every action we take is about a need for homeostasis, we can change our mindset and design our life accordingly. So, what lessons can we draw to manage our own motivation? First, we must realize that discomfort isn't necessarily a bad thing. Thinking that feeling bad is always bad is an unhelpful notion, propagated by clueless self-help gurus and modern-day snake oil salesmen. Discomfort doesn't always need to be relieved. It can be leveraged like rocket fuel to propel us forward. Instead of looking for the easiest way to rid ourselves of pain, we can look within to understand what's driving our desire to escape the way we feel. What are we avoiding when we don't do the things we really want to do? For me, when I realized I was avoiding the hard work of writing my book, I finally saw that it was nothing more than my feelings standing in my way. I procrastinated instead of writing my book because I didn't feel like writing. But who said I needed to feel like writing? My imposter syndrome did. I believed that if I were a real writer, writing would be an effortless habit and I'd always find my work easy and fun. My urge to give in to distraction was my brain's way of avoiding bad feelings like frustration, and self-doubt. Once I realized that, I was able to let go of my ridiculous notions and start working, whether I felt like it or not. Second, after identifying the uncomfortable emotional states, we can prepare ourselves for what we will do the next time we experience those negative emotions. As I detail in Indistractable, we can use dozens of well-studied techniques to prepare ourselves for the inevitable urges that can lead to self-defeating behaviors. Practices like the 10-minute rule have been shown to be a highly effective way to master the internal triggers that lead us off track. And finally, we can rely less on our feelings and more on our routines. By deciding in advance how we want to spend our time, according to our values and our schedule, we pave a clear path for our future actions. Instead of depending on motivation, we can do what we said we would by glancing at our calendar. 
Work on my book shifted into high gear when I finally learned about setting what psychologists call an implementation intention. The practice of planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. A distractible person waits for motivation, then doesn't understand why they fail to accomplish their goals day after day after day. An indistractable person knows why they got distracted and takes steps today to avoid getting distracted by the same thing tomorrow. By finally understanding what motivation really is and what it is not, we can harness it when we have it and use other methods when it runs dry. That was What is Motivation? You've probably been thinking about it all wrong. By Nir Eyal for Near and Far on the 14th of June, 2021. Read by Sean Crisden. Your phone enables you to access endless information. However, it is also a portal to constant terrible news. Here is how you can take back control and rein it in. From the Washington Post, read by Marnie Penning. It can be hard to look away from your phone and live your life while terrible events are unfolding. War is 24-7. There's an unrelenting flow of images, videos, and graphic updates out of Ukraine, filling social media, messaging apps, and news sites. Then there's COVID, climate change, natural disasters, and every new or ongoing humanitarian crisis that feels impossible to look away from. It's important to stay informed, engaged, and even outraged, but it's also important to pay attention to our own limits and mental health by taking breaks, looking for signs of burnout, and consuming news in the smartest way possible. That means setting some ground rules for the main portal connecting us to nonstop tragedy, our phones. First, you must give yourself permission to take a break. It is okay to hit pause on the doom and go live your life, whether that means going outside with the kids or just losing yourself on the silly side of TikTok. It's necessary for everyone's mental health. It's really important for us to give ourselves permission to set boundaries about our news consumption and social media, says Kristen Choi, an assistant professor of health policy and management at UCLA and a psychiatric nurse who works with kids and adults. That constant influx of traumatic images and content can really wear on our minds. Many people are already burned out from two years of the pandemic, says Choi, and their reserves for coping and dealing with stress are low right now. It's a recipe for anxiety and depression. On top of that, constant exposure to violence and negative news can warp our thinking. It can give people a negative bias in how they view the world. Choi says it can cause people to see everything in absolutes. For example, thinking that if they take a break from the news, that means they don't care about the issue. Finally, it can lead people to think the worst possible outcome is going to happen, known as catastrophizing. It's also important to take time for self-care. A break is not a few minutes away from Twitter. Start with real breaks of at least 30 minutes to an hour so that your brain has time to come down from what you were last watching or reading. 
work up to longer periods of time if you can, ideally taking them throughout the day with a longer break before bed. How you spend your non-doom-scrolling time is just as important as remembering to take it. Ideally, you'll put your phone down and take a technology break, but if your ideal way to unwind is watching some light Netflix, that's fine too. Just turn on your phone's Do Not Disturb mode. Troy recommends using your time to do some activities known to help with stress reduction, aka self-care, including exercise, mindfulness and meditation, journaling, engaging in hobbies and other activities you enjoy, spending time with family and friends, and doing faith-based activities if you practice. For guided meditation, try out dedicated apps such as Headspace or Calm. Check for free trials and ask if your employer offers a discount or find any of the great offerings on YouTube. You must change your news habits. The same tricks used for avoiding misinformation can help you follow news in a healthier way. Disinformation like propaganda is designed to capture your attention and elicit strong emotions, which can contribute to any anxiety you're already feeling. Instead, stick with reputable sources and use tools like Google News or Apple News to see a variety of content that is more likely to be vetted. If you can wait, opt for deeply reported stories at the end of the day over constant smaller updates. Avoid using social media for news, but if you do, follow sources and people that contribute to your understanding of an issue rather than those that just generate more outrage. The news recipe will be different for everyone. Some people find it's helpful to do deep dives into a topic and gather as much background or history as possible instead of just reacting to a sensational headline or quick cable news clips. Others might prefer the main takeaway of a news story without any disturbing details. Whether it's podcasts or TikToks, figure out what is least overwhelming for you. One method you can use is to turn on screen time limits. In 2018, the big tech companies pushed out features to address growing concerns about too much screen time and smartphone addiction. The settings were an attempt to calm critics of the companies, which had made the very products people couldn't put down. The options are still around if somewhat forgotten. This is a great time to turn them on. The settings vary, but you can set your Android or iPhone to allow only certain amounts of time for individual apps, or make it so you can only use your phone for essential things like communication with family members, depending on the time of day. The most used apps have also added some of their own similar settings. Facebook has time management features in its mobile app. Open Facebook on your phone or tablet and tap the icon that looks like three lines in the bottom corner. Scroll down and tap settings. From there, go to privacy, settings, and your time on Facebook, which is in the preferences section. On Instagram, go to your profile Hit the same three-line icon and select Your Activity. Tap on Time Spent, and you'll find settings to set reminders, to take a break, or to set daily time limits for how much you can use the app. And in TikTok, go to Settings and Privacy and tap on Digital Well-Being. You can set a time limit for how much you can use the app, from 40 to 120 minutes a day. You should also be stingy with notifications. 
They're one of the best parts of smartphones and one of the worst parts of smartphones. Nearly every app has options for notifications of some kind, and your phone has settings for the different types. Quiet, loud, in your face, discreetly on the top of your screen. Go through all the notifications you currently get and turn off any duplicates. Keep the ones that make you happy, sports updates, Instagram DMs, and turn off any that are stressing you out. Anything Twitter-related, excessive breaking news updates, Slack. You must try to view your phone in black and white. In your smartphone's accessibility settings, there is an option to make the screen black and white instead of color. Some studies have indicated that turning this on leads to less screen time, and it's a trick Choi uses herself. And finally, you need to know when to ask for help. Look for signs that you are burned out or experiencing serious anxiety. First, consider whether you're predisposed to reacting strongly to a particular issue. Anyone who has personally dealt with similar trauma or war in the past might find constant, vivid social media posts about Ukraine to be triggering. Be careful about bottling up your emotional reactions to the news. This kind of compartmentalizing might be helpful in the short term, but Choi says you still have to process the emotions at some point or risk them coming out later in unexpected ways, affecting your mental health. Look for signs that your anxiety has become serious. Are you in a constant state of anxiety? with your heart racing faster than normal most of the time, or a sense of panic that doesn't go away? Is your anxiety impacting your sleep patterns, diet, or basic ability to take care of yourself? Is it hurting your work or affecting your relationships? If so, it's time to ask for help. You can start by talking to trusted friends or family members, then finding a professional therapist through your insurance, your work, or local organizations. The Anxiety and Depression Association of America has some resources on its site. It's okay to seek help, says Choi. It's not a sign of weakness. That was How to Stay Up to Date on Terrible News Without Burning Out by Heather Kelly for The Washington Post on the 29th of March, 2022. Read by Marnie Penning. The octopus is one of the most intelligent creatures on Earth. They solve complex problems, escape from impossible situations, and even plan for the future. So what can we learn from them about everyday life? A lot. The hell-raising octopus at a German zoo. The Sea Star Aquarium had its hands full with Otto the octopus. He was exceptionally capable and prone to mischief. In 2008, he was caught juggling hermit crabs out of boredom. Otto lifted the lid of his aquarium and chucked rocks at tanks containing sea creatures he didn't like. For whatever reason, he hated one of the employees and made it a point to squirt water at her until she quit her job. But Otto's magnum opus involved another grievance. Otto despised the neon lighting near his aquarium. When workers were gone, he routinely squirted water at the lights and short-circuited the power at the facility. The power outages confused maintenance workers for weeks until they caught on. The part that fascinates me is that nobody teaches an octopus any tricks. An octopus is born separate from its mother. 
It is born helpless and nearly microscopic. It learns everything from scratch in a very short lifespan of two to four years. Octopus lesson number one. Otto got a better tank, away from the annoying light, and other creatures that irritated him. In doing so, he illustrated the importance of communicating one's feelings. But I'm not telling you to go squirt people. Conan picks a bad opponent. My friend Jeff had a pet octopus named Conan. I sometimes put my eye up to the glass and it was so bizarre, you could tell this octopus was looking me directly in the eyes. He couldn't have looked more alien. Like any intelligent pet, Conan was prone to mischief. He tore apart the filter and other parts of the tank when he got bored. This became more problematic when Jeff bought a lionfish for the tank. They are poisonous and have their own temperaments. Conan periodically reached a tentacle out to poke the lionfish and screw with it. Periodically, Jeff would jump up and shout, Oh crap, Conan is messing with the lionfish again. He'd get a stick to separate them or simply tap on the window. He quickly realized he needed to separate the. But before he could make a change, he walked in on what looked like a crime scene. The octopus, given too much free time, had attempted to eat the lionfish and died midway through his meal. Octopus takeaway number two. Even the octopus wasn't immune to the adage, an idle mind is the devil's playground. Channel boredom to the appropriate channel. Avoid doing the taste test. The escape master. Inky had no reason to escape. He lived a good life in New Zealand's National Aquarium. His tank was a liquid mansion. There were no predators and free meals were a guarantee. One morning, managers came in to discover he was gone. They conducted an investigation and concluded he'd crawled across the floor and slid through a drain pipe that emptied out into the ocean. Octopus lesson number three. It doesn't matter how perfect a situation seems to outsiders, sometimes you have to make a break for it. Risk is necessary for true freedom. Nature's troublemaking introvert. Octopus are extremely solitary. Scientists did an experiment putting two octopuses into a fish tank. Both of them sat on opposite sides of the tank. When scientists added MDMA, ecstasy, to the water, the two octopuses spent eight hours with their arms wrapped around each other, feeling each other up. I've seen people on ecstasy and this is exactly how they act. I was the sober guy at the party. They were hopped up and happy. They had this kindergarten teacher-like friendliness, asking for hugs and if we could all be best buds forever. More plainly octopuses and humans have the same reaction to serotonin-based drugs. We also share something else in common, our eyes. Both humans and octopuses have a cornea, iris, accommodating lens, and fluid-filled vitreous humor. Our eyes became similar through concurrent evolution. In evolution, there is always an ideal build for a creature in a given environment. Good eyes often pair well with intelligence. In many ways, octopuses are the humans of the sea. And if that wasn't enough, they also have vivid dreams like us. The octopus dreams in ways that simulate their life experience, just as we do. They are able to create mental imagery and replicate it during sleep. Octopus lesson number four. No matter how different something or someone else seems, you likely have more in common with them than you think. The art of hunting like an octopus. 
Octopuses aren't strong. They don't have devastating weapons like a shark. They aren't faster than the fish they hunt. But they compensate for this with their cunning. The blanket octopus takes it to an entirely different level. Most are equipped with strong immunity to jellyfish stingers. If they feel they are being hunted, they have an emergency plan. They will rip the tentacle off of a man -o war and use it as a sword to defend themselves, slashing at a prospective shark. It's a draconian but effective strategy. In controlled scientific settings, an octopus will take its time to solve a problem. Sometimes it spends five minutes between attempts to open a contraption to get a shrimp. Octopuses are thoughtful and measured. They know, better than many humans, that decisions have consequences. Octopus Lesson Number 5. Be adaptable, patient, and resourceful with your environment. And always, always have an escape plan. In conclusion. I have a pet theory that there are water planets where cephalopods fly spaceships and work with computers. They aren't any smarter than our octopuses. They just figured out how to connect the dots. So we should start taking notes now. 5 Octopus Life Lessons Recap If you're unhappy, it's upon you to make noise. You can't always be the good guy. Use boredom is an opportunity to be productive. If you are feeling stuck, break out and slide down the drainpipe. A little danger is necessary to pursue your dreams. If you have a lot in common with an octopus, you probably have something in common with a complete stranger. Troubleshoot your problems with steady curiosity and patience. Become a master solver, like an octopus.